This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Today, our guest is Ava Sadrapur, Executive Director of Turnaround Arts California, an organization founded by architect Frank Geary and advocate Melissa Schreiber, based on the pilot Turnaround Arts Program of the Obama administration to integrate arts programs for improved learning and, so- and school environments for mar- marginalized communities. I'm Mary Elkins. Ava began her career as an attorney focused on environmental and human rights law before changing her professional path to philanthropy, specializing in fund development, where she implemented fundraising programs at Thurlow Associates, the Grammy Museum, and the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, before transitioning to her current role in organization-wide leadership, and as Kathy mentioned, as Executive Director of Turnaround Arts California. Welcome, Ava. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Glad to have you. You were born in Iran, so please tell us a little bit about your background and upbringing and how that led you to your current work in the nonprofit sector. Yes, I'm very fortunate to have had a very global upbringing. I was born in Iran and um, My parents chose to leave the country and move to Europe when I was three years old. So we went to France, to Paris. My dad was a doctor. He was a psychiatrist. Um, And I lived in Paris for five years. So my second language was French. I went to school. I was immersed in the culture. (laughs) I remember my mother taking me to the Louvre Museum on weekends, you know, all the amazing resources to have as a child. That was incredible. And after five years there, my parents separated and my mom and I moved to the States, to California, where my mom had some family. Um, so then in the, that was in the third grade, I started to learn my third language, which was English. So I came into uh, public schools in California as an English language learner. And um, I'm very fortunate to have become trilingual by the time I was eight years old. It has served me well. Um, mm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> And I would say that throughout my life, you know, we lived in Southern California and then we moved to San Francisco. So that's where I went to high school. Then I went to undergrad at UC Santa Barbara, stayed in public education as a student. And um, I always was really inspired and motivated by both the arts and by social justice. So those were always themes in my life and in my interests. And they were fostered by my, my, my mother. She really loved literature and films and always you know, it would be the Scholastic Book Fair and some children would be getting the Babysitter's Club and she was getting me George Orwell's 1984. So she- <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. A lot of great values in me and I was a good reader. So um, 
And then I, I personally just gravitated to music and visual arts as well. So those themes started young in my life. They were really nurtured by my mother and, and others. Uh, and after college, I was advised to go um, into law school if I wanted to do human rights work, that that was the best degree to obtain. That's what my advisors told me. So that's what I did. I went to Southwestern Law School here in Los Angeles. That's what brought me down here. And um, yeah, that's how I started on my current path. Well, I was going to ask you about being an attorney because you were very successful. What was it that led you away from law and drew you to the nonprofit arena? Some would say that's uh, a turnaround. It is, yes. Um, I really loved law school. Let me start by saying that I was a, I thrived in law school. I was a great student. I did well, good test taker. I was very active in the extracurriculars. Very fortunate to have some wonderful externship opportunities with Bay Area Legal Aid, um, where my supervisor was a very legendary civil rights attorney named Steve Bingham. Um, and I externed for a federal judge and all of these fantastic things. So I was ready to go into my career in law. And then I started with my first job and all my jobs really were litigation jobs. And I did not know how different litigation would be from, you know, kind of the policy work or the other interests I had pursued in law school. So uh, it was a shocking transition from the start <laughs> to adjust to litigation. And um, I, I tried my hand at a few different types of law because I thought maybe, maybe it's just that maybe I thought I loved human rights, but now that I'm doing human rights law, maybe that's not for me and I should try some other type of litigation. So I, I, I tried a few different things and, and ultimately with the help of some coaching, I realized that it wasn't the type of law, it just was the practice of law that didn't work for me. You know, I was miserable all week. I, <laughs> mm -hmm. oh. I had a pit in my stomach Sunday night before oh. the Monday, you know, I had this dread about going to work. And um, it just wasn't any way to, to live given that I had other options. So uh, after a, a long three years of trying to make <laughs> the legal path work for me, I, some people tell me, oh, you're so brave to leave the law. You, it took so, such courage to leave the law, but it would have taken a lot more courage to stay because I was just so unhappy. Well, good for you for following your dream. Yeah. You know, following your gut and your heart and taking a big step out. Um, but please tell us about your work at Thurlow Associates and the Grammy Museum and at UCLA. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So when I was in search of my next career, I was very fortunate. So I worked first with a career coach, the State Bar of California at the time. I don't know if they still do very kindly provided, a, I think, four hours of free career coaching for all attorneys. Maybe they would anticipate that we would be unhappy in our jobs. Uh, so yeah, they yeah. connected me with a career coach, and that was pretty kind of standard. I did a few aptitude tests, you know, the um, the Briars, I can't remember what it's called, you know, all the, all the tests about what skills you have and what kinds of professions would work for you. And that was sort of helpful. I think one of the tests said law would be a great area. So I, I wasn't sure how accurate it would be. Um, and my best friend at the time was applying to uh, psychology PhD programs. And she had hired what was then, I think, maybe a newer field uh, called life coaching. She had hired a life coach to help her through that process. And she really liked him. His name was Adrian Klapak at A Path That Fits. So I said, well, I'd love to work with your life coach. And he was based in the Bay Area, but I worked with him by phone. 
And that was really the transformative work. Um, I think many people never have the opportunity to do any exercises to explore their values. So there's skills, but there's values too, right? And with Adrian, I was able to do a lot more of the deeper work. Like what, what motivates me? What gives meaning to my life? When I'm, if I'm lucky enough to be 85 years old and I'm looking back on my life, what would I have been happy to have done? And what would have, what would my regrets have been? You know, just kind of this more expansive thinking. And at the same time, I was involved with some local nonprofit boards. And so between those conversations and the board work, development just presented itself as a path. Sorry, this is my cat. Dora, um, <laughs> development presented itself as a path. And I literally went to Craigslist, which at the time was a place that you could find jobs. I don't know if it still is. I went to Craigslist and I entered nonprofit development and a position at Thurlow Associates came up. And I wow. applied, yes, and I applied. And um, I was very fortunate to get an interview because I had no experience <laughs> in nonprofit development. But my law degree has many times given me a leg up, even when it's in fields that don't relate to practice of law, because people are impressed by a law degree. They feel, as one boss said to me, it means I know you're smart. I don't have to worry about you being smart enough to do the job. So I said, okay, I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> so that came in handy for you, no matter what. Exactly. <laughs> and, they, and, they know, and they know you have competence of a certain level because you can't get through law school and pass the bar if you exactly. don't. Exactly. It kind of established a baseline. Um, so, nice. <laughs> so it served to my advantage. But anyways, Victoria Thurlow was the owner of the firm at the time, and she um, hired me and really taught me a lot about fundraising and grant writing in particular. And we served um, maybe 50 nonprofit clients across LA County and the Bay Area at the time. And so I had the chance to see how, non how nonprofits operated across a range of industries, you know, from early childhood to environmental causes to health literacy and hospitals. And that was a fantastic foundation for the landscape in Los Angeles of both philanthropy and nonprofits and how they work together. So beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So I owe a lot to her and to my really intelligent, wonderful colleagues who also she had hired and worked there. I learned a lot from everybody. And did you actually have a position at the Grammy Museum too? I did. So then, yes, when I was ready, um, at, at some point I felt like I didn't want to be a consultant anymore and I wanted to be in-house. I felt like I could learn more doing fundraising inside an organization versus as a consulting partner. And at the time I was a member of the Grammy Museum. It was this little gem in downtown LA mm -hmm. and I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm obsessed with music. And I, the first time I went, I was just in awe. I was a kid in candy store. I couldn't believe it existed. So I would go to all the events and I got to see Bob Santelli, who was the founding executive director, kind of in action doing these fantastic interviews with artists in this tiny 200 seat Clive Davis theater. It, it was just such magic. And so I started telling everybody I knew that I would love to work at the Grammy Museum. And eventually the stars aligned. They had a position open for a corporate membership manager. And my um, there was a mentorship program at the Association of Fundraising Professionals, LA. My mentor there, I mentioned it to her and she said, I think I know somebody who may know somebody at the Grammy Museum. Let me make a phone call. And she did that for me and she got me an interview. And that was all I needed. 
um, I had the interview. And from there, the conversations really developed beyond corporate membership uh, to Bob asking me, you know, what if I were to give you the position of development manager? What if, what if I asked you to build a development program for the museum? Because they didn't have one. They had a membership program. Hmm. And I said, it would be an honor. Um, and so that's how I got that job. Ooh, I love that <laughs> yeah. story. Yeah, that's wonderful. What about UCLA? So after a few years at the Grammy Museum, I wasn't looking, you know, it was such a dream job. Um, and at the same time, I had I, I had taken the program from fundraising, you know, very small amount, under $400,000. And I'd grown it to $2 million a year in fundraising revenue. Wow. But I, yes, it was amazing. And, you know, of course, I didn't do it alone. Fundraising is a team sport, team sport. But I started to realize the constraints we would have in growing more and in my own growth, you know, in terms of the types of fundraising I could do. And um, I think a year or two before that, a colleague of mine, Teresa Duncan, at the time, she was the head of development for the aquarium in Long Beach. She and I began a roundtable, kind of an informal professionals network for um, museums and cultural institutions in Los Angeles. Mm. So we would gather as the heads of development, you know, for the zoo or for um, the Natural History Museum, you know, any, any uh, LACMA was involved and we would host each other at our sites um, for a roundtable every two months and discuss ideas. And occasionally we would post jobs either that we were trying to fill or that were available. And at some point, somebody who I didn't know had been added to the listserv and he was at UCLA, my colleague, Fred, and he posted the job for the UCLA Herb Albert School of Music, looking for an inaugural development director. And I think I may have ignored it the first time it was posted. Because <laughs> well, you, you weren't looking. I wasn't looking. And the second time I said, okay, maybe it's just worth an exploration because UCLA is the number one fundraising university among all the public universities. They raise the most, hmm. they're a fundraising powerhouse. You know, they have endowments, they have planned giving, they have all these types of fundraising that I didn't have the opportunity to experience at the Grammy Museum because the Grammy Museum was a younger, smaller organization. So I said, let's try it. <clears throat> and um, it went well, <laughs> it turned yeah. out well for me. It was a six month interviewing process by the time I applied and by the time I was offered the position. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, I think, oh, go ahead. Well, what's the difference between fundraising for a university like UCLA and the Grammy Museum? How is that different from the nonprofit sector as a whole? Yeah. It, it, so the nonprofit sector is so broad. It, it, can, it, it includes, you know, to my understanding, it includes all the various types of nonprofits that work within it. And that includes hospitals and universities, which are very different from your local public theater you know, or your uh, food bank. They're all kind of various industries that are glommed in together as a nonprofit sector. And it also includes the grant makers, you know, all of the foundations who give, whether they're smaller family run foundations or really large institutions um, like the Weingart Foundation, for example, they, they are all, we're all swimming in the same pool and we all interact at some, <laughs> in some way, are affected by each other in some way. So, you know, working at the Grammy Museum, that's you know part of the museum sector. It's part of the music industry. There's kind of one type of work you'll be exposed to there that would be different than working, say, at the Library Foundation. But then once you go to a university, 
there, there's just a broader expanse of what you can do. So a university the size of UCLA with the legacy of UCLA has this reputation that precedes it that attracts donors in. You don't have to work as hard to attract donors. They have a built-in donor base with alumni. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have that at a museum. Um, you know, they have various functions. There's, there's um, you know, at the museum, at times I was a one-woman shop. At times we were a three or four-person shop. But if there was a mailing to be done, we did it, or we had to pay a mailing house to do it. Um, If there was some marketing to be done, we had to work on it with the communications team and get it together. Mm -hmm. UCLA is such a huge machine that there were teams that would do each aspect of fundraising. So you learn more, but then you also have a um, slower, more thorough process because of all the levels of review and bureaucracy and, just kind of the input that's needed to get something done, right? So if somebody wanted to make a gift to name a gallery at the Grammy Museum, it was a discussion between me and the executive director and perhaps the board. Um, At UCLA, there are minimums for how much it costs to name Uh spaces. They have to be approved in a certain way, right? There's these gift agreements and terms that are written up, um, most of which is not within the individual director of development's control. It's policies that are set at a different level. So it's just an entirely different machine, but the function of the work is the same. You are still engaging with donors. You are still um, stewarding and thanking donors. The core of the work remains the same. It's just kind of the mechanics for how it gets done are different. And I wanted to ask you, because you have a multi-step method of wooing donors. So (laughs) what is it? And can you give our listeners who may be interested in nonprofit work some thoughts on how to get into it? Oh, sure. I don't know that I have a personalized step. I've, um, I I consider myself a great student and I'm always reading and learning and going to conferences and trying to just learn from my peers and those I work with. But, you know, um, uh, my approach is always twofold. I approach my work from um, a position of abundance. So I'm not Mm -hmm. in competition with any other nonprofit, I think there's so many worthy causes and donors are very generous. You know, you probably as individuals support more than one organization as do I and, and donors, no matter the size are the same, they have the capacity to support more than one cause, even causes that are related. Um, so that that's one thing that, you know, there's like a different philosophy in the field. Some people can ascribe to a different mindset. Um, and then the other thing is just treating everybody as individuals, you know, and personalized personalized and just really getting to know uh the people you're working with as philanthropists you know you're expecting them to know about your organization you should be investing in them too who they are what they care about who their families are what's important to them do they have pets you know all of those things like i Mm. i have formed such deep bonds with people who i've met as donors and um and develop friendships and keep in touch with folks, you know, after I leave the institutions, they're not giving to me, right? They're giving to the cause that I'm representing or I'm helping facilitate giving. Uh-huh. So it's never about me. Um, but sometimes you can also have, you know, a special connection with somebody. And that, and that just comes from actually really caring. I love that approach. I do too. Thank you. Tell us more about the mission of Turnaround Arts and the work you do there and the impact on the community and the students in regard to their emotional well-being, language skills, and academic achievement. 
Yes, I'm happy to. Turnaround Arts is such a special organization. I'm really honored um, and blessed to serve in this capacity as the new executive director. You know, it was, um, it has a long history. You know, there was a, an intensive report that was created by the President's Committee on Arts and Humanities under the Obama administration that basically studied the state of the schools in America, public schools, and tried to identify why we were having high dropout rates, why we were having low engagement rates, you know, why the test scores weren't doing well, and turn to arts integration strategies as the way to quote unquote, turn around low performing schools. And that's where the name comes from. And that strategy is backed by years of research that shows that arts integration education can make a really big difference. So there's arts, you know, you can come in and teach painting or teach dance. And then there's also arts integration where you're using the arts to teach other subjects. You're using the arts to teach science. You're using the arts to teach math. Um, and that's what we're talking about. So what Turnaround Arts does is partner with public elementary and middle schools all across California. And we train teachers and principals to integrate the arts in their work. And that's a nuanced research-based intensive process that's led by our fantastic program team and our network of coaches and partners that we work with. Um, and it's over many years, but they basically help to create a school that is an arts rich environment that engages students in different ways. You know, we don't all learn in the same way. And sometimes you can express that you've understood a concept through an art rather than verbally or written, especially for our English language learners. Um, that gives them an additional avenue to show their learning. And as an English language learner, I really appreciate that. And, yeah. um, you know, just creating these rich environments where students feel valued, teachers feel inspired, they're connected to what brought them to the teaching profession in the first place. Families get more engaged, right? Mm. I, I met with a principal recently who said they turned their open house into a student art festival and open house. Oh, I love that. Yes. And so the students had a chance to engage, you know, showcase their work. And then the families were more engaged because they were also coming to see their students artwork. Uh -huh. And that's just a small example. You know, there's much kind of deeper professional development learning that's happening. And I, there's two quotes I have to share with you because they really kind of explain the work that we do. One is from First Lady Michelle Obama, you know, who um, the First Lady is the chair of the President's Committee of Arts and Humanities. And she said, quote, Arts education isn't something we add on after we've reached other priorities like raising test scores and getting kids into college. It's actually critical for achieving those priorities in the first place. That's what the Turnaround Arts Program is all about. Mm -hmm. And, and does it only exist in California right now? No. So it's a program when it was piloted uh, initially with the President's Committee, it was then moved to the Kennedy Center. So that's why we have a national program at the Kennedy Center. Mm -hmm. And then different local programs were created California happens to be the largest of the local programs. We're, I believe, the only one that's statewide and we're the only one that's organized as a 501c3. Other turnaround arts programs might be district-based. You know, they're embedded, the staff is embedded in the district, in a school district and does the work that way. Mm. Um, and then- What was your other quote? My other quote is from Frank Geary. So Frank and Melissa co-founded Turnaround Arts and Frank has said, um, here, I have to find the quote here, I have it. He said, the arts should belong to everybody and every kid should have the chance for a good education. Access to the arts and a high quality education aren't two different ideas. They are one reality. Oh, 
I want to Love give it. you a standing ovation. With, with that <laughs> ovation belongs art. to Frank. Yes. You know, art, give it art. to Frank. Yes. Standing ovation to Frank. <laughs> yeah. Give the innovation to him. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm so glad that this program exists because when I was coming up through public school in California, it was just natural arts were offered all the time. Yeah. You, and they, I, I, I think it, partly subsidized the rental of the instruments too. We started violin in fourth grade or fifth grade, whatever instrument instrument you wanted to take. Mm -hmm. And it was just like a given. Everybody sang, everybody did drama. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It was in but then it all went away, you know? And what do you what happened to the schools and the students in the turnaround program when the pandemic closed their doors? Oh, how was your how was your work at Turnaround Arts in fact affected? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, affected. I mean, you know, I, I, <laughs> I in, um, yeah, it's a good word. I joined in December, and so much of the transition to the pandemic um, oh. reality had already happened. So I can speak anecdotally a bit. You know, I think um, two things. One, it was incredibly hard for schools, really hard on students, of course, hard on families hard on uh, teachers, administrators, principals, leaders. And, you know, um, nobody knew, right? None of us, we were all learning as we went along and didn't know what to expect or how long this shutdown would last. And so I think first we had a constituent population that we serve that was going under some really traumatic circumstances. Um, so what the what the team at Turnaround Arts did was adapt very quickly to the remote landscape. So they started to offer all of the trainings, all of the convenings in a remote remote format. And sometimes there's a little bit that's lost in the human to human connection when everything is on Zoom. Having said that, it also actually connected our statewide network in a deeper way because everybody could meet on Zoom. Uh, there weren't kind of travel considerations in the way logistics, you know, our, our uh, teachers at our school in Hoopa, which is at the very top of the state, could communicate with our teachers in Chula Vista, you know, at the bottom of the state. Right. Um, and so that was that's a learning that we're going to keep moving forward in terms of how we program remote and in-person learning and opportunities. And I think the other anecdote that I um, remember from what staff has shared with me is that teachers who were using arts integration would sometimes report that the arts components of the classes on Zoom were when the students would be the most engaged and when students who might not otherwise be on Zoom would pop back on screen oh. and they were able to talk to them. And it created a space for healing, it created a space for engagement and, um, you know, expression, we've all been through this trauma together and the arts are such a powerful way of bonding, of releasing, you know, of processing that grief. Uh, I was just in a school a few weeks ago after the war in Ukraine began and the students had gone to their teacher saying, you know, we want to talk about what's happening. And the teacher had created a way for them to do it through the arts where they each painted a different sunflower and then together created a collage in the shape of a heart. And it gave them an, opp an opportunity to do something with their hands and with their creative minds, but then they could also talk about the issues that were important to them relating to the war, the things that were scaring them while engaging in a safe creative activity. That's beautiful. Yeah. And 
considering how much poverty and chaos there is in the world today, what do you think it's important to know about charitable giving at this time? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, American, the American system of philanthropy is unique. <laughs> it doesn't exist this way anywhere else. And it has its faults like every other system. But Americans are incredibly generous. You know, giving went up in the pandemic. Um, you know, part of that is because <clears throat> really wealthy folks became a little bit more wealthy as a result of the markets during the pandemic. But also a lot of us who felt privileged to be able to work from home or to have our health um, or any other kind of number of things that our fellow Americans were facing, we wanted to help in any way we could, right? And help alleviate the burdens of the virus. So everybody stepped up and gave um, very generously. So I think, you know, whenever I feel helpless about a situation, I turn to philanthropy first. It's an easy way to support people doing work that you believe in. And it goes a long way. You know, um, nonprofits really depend on the philanthropic support that they receive. And every nonprofit is structured differently. Some receive more government grants, some less, some foundation grants, some less, some a combination. But um, for the most part, the gifts that you're making are making a big difference in people's lives and in those organizations. So I support <laughs> giving and I, um, you know, I encourage everybody to consider giving as part of their practice monthly, annually, whatever it is that you do. I, I personally support a number of charities, one that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, in addition to the work that we do at Turnaround Arts is the Stray Cat Alliance. I was on their board for a long time. I'm a huge- Can you say that again? The Stray Cat Alliance. Oh, oh yeah, and okay. Yeah, a lot Stray of rescue. Cat. Yeah, Stray rescue. Cat Alliance, okay. <laughs> They're here in LA and they're just incredible and incredible organization. So, um, I, and I, I do best friends for dogs and cats oh, and all animals. Best yeah. friends is wonderful. Yes. All great organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your career coach and you mentioned your mom. Did you have powerful influencers and mentors along the way? Yeah, I think I would mention one other person, <clears throat> you know, specifically, which is um, Ronald Chase. So Ronald is an artist and he's a nonprofit founder. He lives in San Francisco. He uh, He's an accomplished visual artist. He has works of art in many famous museums and, and regularly does shows. And uh, I believe Ronald is in his 80s now. <laughs> Forgive me, Ronald, if I got the age wrong. But he created a nonprofit called San Francisco Art and Film for students. Yeah. And um, the tagline used to be, and it might still be, we give you what school can't. Oh. And <laughs> Love that. It was, uh, yeah, it was a cultural immersion program, really an art history program that focused on both visual arts and cinema. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going through that program as a teenager, of course, Ronald and the mentors in the program had a huge influence on me and how I view films and art and kind of the critical um, skills that I was able to develop and talking about art and thinking about what it makes me feel and why those things happen. And, um, but he has stayed a dear friend and mentor and throughout key parts of my life, he has had a very clear vision of what should or should not be a path that I'm pursuing. So when I told him I was going to law school, I remember I may have been standing in the lobby of the San Francisco opera with him, something like that. And he said, 
Oh, Ava, don't go to law school. <laughs> and, you know, and I think I said something like, you don't know me. I'm going to go to law school. It's going to be great. You know, <laughs> and when I left the law, I think I had to go back <laughs> to between my legs and say, you were right. He said, I know. I know. I told but, you. <laughs> but at the same time, you, you had that degree that opened a lot of doors for you. That's right. That's right. Yes. So maybe you were right after all. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice to hear, you know, that people have paid attention to their mentors or had career people that have helped them step up along the way. Yes. And we understand that your work has provided you access to several well-known individuals. Can you talk about a little bit how you interacted with Michelle Obama or Smokey Robinson, Barry Gordy? Herb Albert or Frank Gehry, any of the above or all yeah. of the above or more. Sure, I <laughs> or more. <laughs> or more. I've been, you know, really, really fortunate to be able to work with some truly iconic people um, in my line of work. Mrs. Obama was an incredible, uh, it was an incredible honor to be able to work. I never worked directly with her. Um, I worked with her team because we honored her at a gala that we created for the Grammy Museum um, to spotlight the education work. And she had been really part of the White House educational programs that the Grammy Museum had been involved in since day one. And so that relationship existed. Um, and so when we made the ask, she very kindly obliged. And I, you know, sometimes, you know, you can learn a lot about people from their teams and her team was so just classy, professional, kind. Um, I did get to meet her backstage at the event. And actually they were, there was staff lining us up for a photo opportunity. And so it was maybe eight of us on the staff side and they were telling us where to stand. And then there was a space in the middle that was for Mrs. Obama to, you know, she was gonna walk in from whatever other room she was in and go right in the middle and we take the photo. And that's that's what I, that's all I expected. And I was thrilled <laughs> to be in the same room as her. And so when she, I saw her start to walk towards us, I was just kind of looking at her and on waiting for her to take her place, you know, a few people down. And so she really caught me off guard because she came right up to me and I, I was on the end of the photo. <laughs> she came right up to me. She smiled, she put out her hand and she said, hi, I'm Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think I was speechless. I, I maybe, maybe stammered eventually, like stammered my name and my position out and, and said, thank you so much for being here. But just, um, I think that moment really said a lot, you know, that she, she felt that she was on equal footing as everybody else in the room. And she was going to come right up to you and person to person, shake your hand and introduce herself as if we didn't all know exactly who she was, you know? And so, um, I will always remember that moment and, and, um, the example that she set. With the that made a big impact on you. Huge, huge. It's really, well, I have never met any other first ladies or presidents. And it mm -hmm. just Isn't really that wonderful? Yeah. And what about the music people? Yeah. Uh, the other music people like Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy. Yeah. I, so, Herb Alpert. Yep. I, Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy, you know, we were, again, we honored them for, for the first gala of its kind at the Grammy Museum. Mm -hmm. Um where I worked mostly with their people, but when I met them the night of the event, they were incredibly kind and generous, um, you know, and just told wonderful stories to everybody who was at the gala. And we were just thrilled to be able to honor them for really their contributions to the Motown genre. Uh -huh. um, you know, Herb Alpert, I've worked with most close, more closely Herb and Lonnie, you know, they're 
-hmm. incredible philanthropists and supporters. And as the head of development for the Herb Albert School of Music, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I was very fortunate to work with them. And again, just such kind, down to earth, wonderful people um, who, who have taken stock of the you know, blessings in their life and decided to share those blessings with others. Mm. And again, just everybody who works with them is so kind. The musicians in their band, when they perform, the wonderful leadership and staff at the Herb Albert Foundation, you know, the people who work with Herb on his sculptures and paintings, just mm. everybody is just so kind. And it, you know, it starts from the top. It's it's what yes. Herb and me are putting into the relationships and it's, you know, spreading to everybody else. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with Paul Oakenfold, who's wonderful. He's a huge DJ in um, electronic dance music. I've worked a little bit with Ringo Starr and his team because we had a Ringo Starr exhibit oh. at the Grammy Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a Beatle, you know, that's an honor to be. That must have been fun. <laughs> it was really special. Yeah. Um, I had the chance to meet Quincy Jones because of work. And again, he was so kind and so warm and welcomed um, me and the, the student I was working with into his home. Uh, and I will never forget that experience. You know, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, Randy Newman was on the board of advisors at the Herb Alpert School of Music. Um, some icons of the industry too, who were not artists, but Jerry Moss has always been so wonderful to work with Mo Austin and Michael Austin uh-huh. and the entire Austin family. So again, you uh-huh. know, um, I know people. all of those people because my, <laughs> yeah. my husband was Ken Cragen and he knew oh. all of those people and yeah. he taught a class at the UCLA yes, School of I Music know his name. and I Herb, know Herb Alpert was kind enough to come and be a guest and be interviewed by him on stage for all the students and Herb mm-hmm. and Lonnie were indeed just wonderful and of course he knew all the other people you've mentioned yes. Mo Austin was a good friend and all those people so mm-hmm. it was it, it's I, I love to hear all those names brought up in such a nice context because all those people are so nice yes. so our true. listeners will too <laughs> yeah they're really nice I mean again um I I've just listen the role that I've played in any aspect of the work I've done with any of these incredible people is so small, but just the nature and quality of those interactions has been so meaningful and um, real, you know, that I'm, I'm, I just feel very grateful to have known any of these people. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, on another (laughs) note, you're a new mom. How do you balance your time between your family and your work with the galas and everything that you're organizing? Yeah, you know, it really, um, I I was already somebody who made lists and liked to schedule, but I didn't realize how much flexibility I had until I became a mother to a human (laughs) baby. (laughs) Very different than that. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. And as my friend um, had said to me once, and she has two young ones, she said, you just learned that your life becomes a series of schedules. Oh. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the only way to do it. Right. And so when I, I try and be present, no matter what I'm doing. So if, if it's t- my time to be with my baby, then I want to be present with him, um, and really enjoy those moments. But that means that when it's time to be working, I want to be present at work and I want to be effective and efficient and clear eyed and 
support the team and do everything that I can. So it makes you more efficient. It makes you more focused. Um, you don't have time to scroll on Instagram <laughs> until everybody's <laughs> asleep and it's the end of the day, you know? Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know um, if anybody gets to balance it all, but I think we all try and <laughs> schedule yeah. lists is what gets me through. That sounds great. What would you like our listeners main takeaway to be today? Oh, that you shouldn't be afraid to change course. Ah, yeah. I think that there's a lot of, you know, for me, I come from an Iranian family and I want to say my mother's always been very supportive, but there's this expectation that Iranian children grow up to be an engineer, a lawyer, or a doctor, right? So I, I did I did the thing, I became a lawyer. And I think a lot of people have a conversation in their mind where they think other people are thinking about them maybe more than they are. And they think, oh, I could never do this to my family or I couldn't possibly change careers. What would people think? Or I, you know, I couldn't wow. even change my hair. What would people think? And the thing is, you just have to live your life for yourself and you have to be happy because if you can't be happy, then the people around you aren't going to be happy. And you know, I really love RuPaul, uh, RuPaul Charles, you know, famous drag queen and entertainer. And, you know, one of his sayings is you, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Yeah. And if you can't be happy in your own life, how are you going to contribute to anybody else's peace and happiness? You know, so do the things that make you happy and people will move on. People will get over it. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Just, I mean, as long as you're not hurting anybody. <laughs> talking about careers and <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah can't do great. whatever you want <laughs> Ava that's great thank you our guest today on late boomers has been Ava Sadrapur executive director of turnaround arts California whose mission is to develop fundraising ventures in order to harness the power of the arts to engage empower and transform marginalized schools and communities thank you Ava Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much to Ava. You can reach Ava and learn more about Turnaround Arts at turnaroundarts.ca.org and also via her email, ava at turnaroundarts.ca.org and also on LinkedIn. And we want to remind our listeners to follow us on Instagram, on Late Boomers, and individually at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. And if you have a contact for someone you'd like us to feature on Late Boomers, please drop us a line on lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z. And thanks again, Ava. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.
calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.